I want you to imagine yourself at your easel, because you all have one, with a palette in hand and a brush in the other. And in your mind's eye, if I was to ask you to paint a picture, a landscape scene that basically depicted your life, what would you paint? Many of us, I suppose, who are Christians here, uh, I want us to be thinking about what we might paint before we came to know Jesus. But if you're here tonight and you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, what would you paint just now? I think what we often think about is that we are in a plush meadow with a country house, nice mountains, and look, just a little bit of mist for effect in the background there. Isn't that a pretty picture? It's often what we would paint of our lives. Some of us may have a more realistic perspective, knowing that life does have its own difficulties. We might paint paint into the meadow a few weeds or a burnt-out car or, you know, something like that. Others might paint a house in need of a little bit of repair but overall I'd say the majority of us would paint something like that it's just a a nice looking place and not a lot wrong with it I think that's what we see in our culture but I think into that scene then comes Jesus Christ with, with brush in hand and like a teacher correcting one's work at school uh paints over our scene to present a a far more realistic picture and maybe so we may have painted this blossoming meadow but the rendition of our lives is perhaps more a little like this in his eyes a little bit more of a Las Vegas strip we're we're all lights and decoration in many respects we are perhaps a den of iniquity in desperate need of a good clean, dressed up to the hilt with flashing lights and that to conceal the truth of the fact that this is actually more of a true picture. We are a desert. We are a desert underneath. We build what we think is life in our Vegases, but really underneath there is this dry, arid, land in this picture it's more more truthful because you see when Jesus speaks in in verse 7 of John chapter 7 he tells us precisely what he is seeing in the world precisely what he is seeing in human beings like us he tells us he says I testify this is why the world tends to hate Jesus as he says I testify that what it the world that is does is evil that he brings a reorientation of our view of ourselves of the landscape of our lives to say to us the truth of the matter is we are a needy people in a parched land of unbelief we're a needy people in a parched land of unbelief and wonderfully in response to that Jesus comes in John chapter 7, standing up, declaring that he is offering a constant supply of refreshing, life-giving water to anyone who truly thirsts for him and seeks this life only in him. 
And we're going to look at that offer towards the end of our sermon. But before we go into that, we have to take into take this the context of this these words into account and really see what else is going on in this passage through the debate that's going on. If we remember from last week, John 6 has basically ended on a bit of a low note, although some have declared their intention to follow Jesus wholeheartedly, saying, you know, to, to whom else should we go? Verse 66 has told us many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed, followed him. They no longer sufficiently trusted in him or believed in him to the extent that they would stay with him and truly follow him. What's more, verse 70 tells us even one of his closest followers would reject him and turn away from him, again, failing to believe that every word of Jesus was absolutely true. And then we come to chapter 7, basically, on a foundation. It's a bit rocky. There's a foundation of unbelief in there, isn't there? Is there any reprieve for us? We're led to believe that in light of the feast that's coming up here, this is even six months later, so Jesus has gone back to Galilee performed some miracles there, did some work and ministry in, in, in that area again and is nudged and encouraged to go up to this feast. But there's no reprieve. The first 10 verses only show, serve to show us that even as Jesus retreats temporarily to his home region, verse 5 says, his own brothers did not even believe in him. So I think what this text serves up for us before we hear those glorious words of invitation from Jesus Christ is the nature of unbelief. There is the, 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 the root of unbelief is really just laid bare for us uh, in John chapter 7. It shows us the kind of things that stop us believing in Jesus. And, and what I want to do is focus in on verses 11 to 36 first of all as it sketches out, I would say, five root causes of unbelief. And in this, of course, we have some amount of debate as to who Jesus truly is. But what stops a person, is the question, what stops a person taking hold of this eternal life? From What stops a person receiving eternal life? Well, the first thing, people doubt the goodness of its character. I think we see this in verses 11 to 13. These verses highlight that the people are not sure what to make of even the way that Jesus is actually conducting himself. It seems that their, their belief swings on a, on a spectrum of, okay, he's a good man, to the other end of the spectrum where he is quite simply a bad man, a deceiver, basically. Now, we understand something of the importance of that criterion, of course, for assessing someone's trustworthiness. I think we apply it practically every day. We think, you know, are, are they good and can I place my trust in them or are they bad and do I need to steer clear? Or at least be wise in what I share. In other words, does this person's walk match their talk? We're not actually told specifically in this text what it is that's good about Jesus that some people would then uh, decide surely he is a good man. But surely from the consistency and the clarity of, of John's gospel, even already, you know, Jesus going around doing good works and healing people. The righteousness and the blamelessness of Jesus' actions and of Jesus' words is really on show for everyone to see. I think that's even plain to see all the way to the very end of John's gospel, evident in the fact that even the men who want to kill Jesus and have him, have him removed will have people lie in order to nail him to the cross. They're going to rely on false testimony. He is that blameless they needed to lie in order to kill him. 
those perhaps who think he is a bad man, then it may seem are perhaps just cynical or else swayed by the religious leaders who are evidently making their judgment on Jesus known. They think he's a menace, of course. And I reckon that same wavering just takes place today. People go to and fro in what they believe about Jesus and the authenticity of the goodness of his character. We read of his goodness surely on the pages of Scripture and people can take it as, it, as they find him. And just think, wow, no one ever lived like this man. No one ever did the kind of things that this man did. Even as the testimony is at the end from the guards. No one ever spoke like this man. But there are cynics. There are cynics among us. There are cynics in this world who will be cynical about Jesus. They either think he's just doing all of this as some kind of show in order to get something for himself. Or perhaps even on the basis of their understanding of what human beings are like. They doubt very much as to whether someone could actually be that good. And so conclude, this, this must be fable. This must be false. Still prevalent today. What about the second thing? People doubting the truth of his teaching in verses 14 to 18. Look at verse 14. When Jesus goes up to Jerusalem, he begins to teach the Jews that is the religious leaders were amazed and asked how does this man get such learning without having studied now in these days you had in order to be a teacher in a synagogue or or a rabbi you went and lived basically under the tutelage of a current rabbi and they would teach students quite simply well basically those who had shown some aptitude they would show them everything that they knew And that place to uh, receive the best theology degree was Jerusalem, where most of the learned teachers lived and worked. But here comes Jesus, who has not attended one of these well-known schools. He's come from a region that's known for its poor educational standards. Not many people from Nazareth could afford university fees. And yet, his teaching is amazing, amazing to them. Why don't we see then this amazement being turned into worship and belief? I think again, there is a doubtful view, a cynical view, an unbelieving view of what Jesus claims even about his own teaching. Verse 16 tells us, of course, why it's amazing. My teaching is not my own. They're thinking, okay, who did he learn it from then? It comes from him who sent me. And they know fine and well from what the things that Jesus has already been saying in some of the dialogue that he's had with the religious leaders that we've already seen in John's gospel. He, he is referring to the Father in heaven. They're in no doubt that he is claiming through this, my teaching, my teaching is straight from God. Again, this can truly be This doubting of the the truth and the veracity of his teaching can be a hindrance to people today again. Some people may conclude Jesus' teaching is really not that great. That some of the reasons they might come to that conclusion will say this is the kind of teaching that breeds some kind of fundamentalist behavior. Or it's this kind of behavior and teaching that such wars over religion make world peace impossible. I don't believe that's true for a second. Because there are plenty of people with no religious background whatsoever and they still fight tooth and nail, don't they? 
and that on a larger scale, never mind just person to person. But again, it's the root cause of some unbelief. It's a hindrance to people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. They doubt the, the, the truth of his teaching. But I think also in verses 19 to 24, the third thing, they doubt the authenticity of his works. Uh, these verses, uh, we find Jesus referring back to the man he has healed in chapter 5 at the pool of Bethesda. Uh, we don't see what we ask. We might ask here, why don't we see those who even saw this miraculous sign following Jesus as well? On those in this situation, he healed, of course, on the Sabbath day. And really, what he did was he ended up intruding on many man-made rules. And it seems that they have set up the kind of boundaries that even God himself is not even allowed to intrude upon. And so, when that happens, that too, when, when God kind of tramples over all the, the rules and the beliefs that we already have in place and, and have established in our lives... And again, that may cause some kind of aversion towards truly putting our faith in Jesus Christ. When the things that we hold precious are threatened, we know what happens. We, we tend to get angry. We can be a little bit defensive about some of these things. And I think that what we see here, even in the Jewish leaders, is, a, is really a response that is, that is aggressive in its form and they're seeking obviously to have him removed. But I think people in our culture, even today, in the 21st century, still do this, the very same thing. It's not uncommon for people in our culture to be making up their own rules in terms of money, sex, power, pride, whatever you want to throw in there. And then Jesus comes along with this kind of teaching and these kind of demands and really people tend to get a little bit angry and that too can, can uh, cloud their judgment. Or what about the fourth thing? People doubt the claims of his origin. We've touched on this already in John's Gospel. But in verses 25 to 31, the people are having a little bit here of a, a crisis of knowledge. They say they know where Jesus is from, so Nazareth and Galilee, yet they believe that when the Christ comes, verse 27, they say, no one will know where he is from. Now, even later on in the text in John 7, we see them say, we know that, that the Christ will come from Bethlehem. But I think what this serves to show is not that there's a discrepancy in what John is writing here, but that there is such division and such a variance in the, the beliefs of the people in terms of their understanding of the scriptures that they read and how they are viewing Jesus either in light of those scriptures or not in light of those scriptures, as we see in this text, they don't know. They're divided. But what they have in mind, some certainly believe, I think uh, when they say no one will know where he is from, they have this view not that they will not know that he is from Bethlehem and born in Bethlehem because they knew he was coming from David's line, King David's line, but simply that they thought that when the Messiah comes, he's going to be some 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 political reformer, some rescuer. And in their mind, he would come suddenly and swiftly and the Romans, the invading, occupying army would be ousted. 
The very problem was, though, even in relation to what they were paying attention to, was that their, that teaching was even based on tradition and not even a plain reading of the scriptures that they said they knew. Again, that is a common problem in our day and a root cause of unbelief. How often have we seen people thinking about whether they should follow Christ and to see that the big obstacle that is in their way is some hangover from a previous religious experience where the Bible has not been honored as the sole authority for life and practice and for stipulating doctrine and unbiblical traditions of churches and their leaders have created a serious block to someone actually coming to faith. It still happens. This is a root form of unbelief. And then lastly, the fifth thing, people doubt really the seriousness of his warning. I think this is the Another reason why a person does not take hold of eternal life in Jesus is down to the inconvenience even of the timing of his call and of his invitation. In verses 32 to 36, Jesus basically warns people in here that they should believe in him now before it's too late. When you look at verse 33, you see him say, I am with you only for a short time, and then I go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Now, Jesus basically knows the path that he is taking. He knows that he is heading towards a cross, okay? He knows he is heading towards his death. And if our timings are correct, if this this Feast of Tabernacles is six months uh, after the the, the, uh, last time he was in Jerusalem, in John 5 and into John 6, we know that the Feast of Tabernacles is right smack dab in the middle of So we know that he is basically six months from being nailed to a cross. And he knows that this is just six months away. He knows that when he has risen from the dead, he will ascend to heaven. And to those who remain in their unbelief, Jesus basically says, where I am, you cannot come. Why? Well, we've already seen in John's gospel, because only he who believes in the Son has eternal life. And whoever does not believe in him does not have eternal life and in fact stands condemned. Again, here are many, many root causes of unbelief. Five of them here. People doubting his goodness, his authenticity, his teaching, his origin. Even not, not, not even believing the warning that he is offering regarding the importance of coming to him and receiving him quickly. Now remember, Jesus Christ is God in the flesh at this point. He is hearing all of these different things. He is seeing all of this this unbelief before him, even to the unbelief expressed in a willingness to kill him. Okay? Let me ask you, if you were Jesus Christ in this point, if you were God in the flesh standing here, what would your response be towards these people? How would you choose to respond to those who claim to, to know you? Because that's what they keep on saying through this text. But do not honor you. To those who say they follow you but ignore your commands. What would you do with these people? So disobedient and so rebellious. Would you wipe them out? I think the temptation would be there, would it not? 
But not for Jesus. I, I, even as Jesus here, I think this is incredible. Even as Jesus is showing people their guilt, even as he is really highlighting here the in response to their questions and in response to their unbelief, answers them, shows them their guilt, paints over their pictures of, of blossoming meadows with blacks and browns and with, with cracked, scorched earth. He is at this point on the way to the cross to deal with that very guilt and deal with that very sin. Jesus' hour is introduced to us here. Jesus' hour is a theme in John that crops up. The hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come until we get to just before the cross. The hour has come. And Jesus testifies about the extent of man's sin, but it is for these very sins, it is these very sins that he is seeking to pay for. And here he is even expressing his salvation, interwoven through that massive chunk of text from verse 11 through to the end there of uh, 36. Jesus' appeal is simple. This is his appeal. Stop judging, verse 24, by mere appearances. His appeal, make a right judgment. Let his truth, let his answers sweep everything away and let these truths reorientate you to who Jesus Christ is and then make a response based on this. What does he say? Quick fire. Verse 17, I teach what is true. I teach what is true. It's not false. He's not lying. We have no reason to doubt. He teaches what is true. Verse 18, I am a man of truth. He is a man of truth who seeks only to honor the Father. Verse 21, I do what is good. Jesus is making some very true statements here. I do what is good. Verse 29, I am sent by the Father. I am truly from God. Therefore, you should be listening to me and not wavering along the spectrum of unbelief. I'm here and I'm calling you. And I have been sent by God. And verse 33, you don't have time to waste in your unbelief. You do not have time to go to and fro and think about making a decision later. You do not have time to waste. Stop your doubting. Throw off your unbelief and come receive eternal life from the Son of God himself. And here we come to verse 37. In answering the question, what does a person need to do to receive then eternal life? As these different forms of unbelief are swept aside and as we hear Jesus appeal to make a right judgment on the basis of the truth that he has proclaimed about himself. If we are ready to come to him, what do we actually need to do? We as believers and Christians here in Charlotte Chapel, what do we need to be encouraging people to do? When we get to that point where maybe we've had a conversation with people and their unbelief has been addressed by the true words of the Bible that we have shared with them. And the passionate appeal that we have made to them. Make a sound judgment in this. Take them to John 7. 37. I love this. On the last and greatest day of the feast. The timing of Jesus' call, you understand, is absolutely spectacular. Okay? 
at this feast, uh, the, the biggest crowd would gather on this final day. It had been a whole, a whole week's worth of feasting, basically. The Feast of Tabernacles, they would get together, all the people from Israel, many, many, up to 800,000, even more, some commentators suggest, would all pitch these little... I mean, they would basically rip everything off surrounding trees nearby. They would build these little booths for themselves. I mean, it was like a big jamboree you know, on the outskirts of the city. They would camp out, and they would come in every day, and they would join in the festivities and the celebrations and so on. And on this last and final day of the feast, it was a great, great day. It was, it was a great day for, of feasting for the people of Israel. And on this last day, as the crowd gathers, a large golden jug would be filled with water from the pool of Siloam, nonetheless, where Jesus had healed the man. No, it wasn't. That was the pool of Bethesda. Uh, pool of Siloam, different pool, but still good. <laughs> and ha- this golden jug, having been paraded from the pool of Siloam, Having been paraded through the streets of Jerusalem, taken up to the Temple Mount, into the Temple grounds there, and this jug would be held high, and the people, the people all around, imagine this. I mean, how many people? About 100,000 100, at the football last night. Imagine 10 times that shouting, Hosanna, 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 three times. Save now, save now, save now. And then the one carrying the jug would ceremonially just tip it up and pour it out and let the water just flow down the street. And it symbolized two things, of course. Number one, God's gracious gift of rain for the harvest, making dead, place, dead dry places alive and bearing fruit that would feed and nourish the people, a sign of what God has done for his people in the past when they were wandering in the desert after they were freed from the slavery in Egypt. But secondly, it looked back, but it also looked forward. It was a foretaste of the promised outpouring of the Holy Spirit and all of God's people at a sign of the coming of the Messiah. And they knew that. They knew that. So this act has a past significance and a future significance. Now imagine the scene. They've all just shouted Hosanna three times. They're all just waiting for this water to be poured out. Can you imagine that point? Jesus standing up and in a loud, loud voice. If anyone is thirsty. If anyone is thirsty. Let him come to me. And drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Spectacular. Can you imagine the response of the people? The water's pouring down the street. If anyone comes to me, that is quite a claim. Quite a claim. You see what Jesus tells us that we need to do in response 
as our unbelief is removed, as we hear his appeal and as we come to hear his invitation, he says, first of all, recognize your desperate need. Admit you are not a blossoming meadow. You're not even a blossoming meadow with a burnt out car. You are parched and needy people in a parched place. We need to acknowledge that. We need to acknowledge that in every pursuit of satisfaction in life, apart from God, away from God, or as a replacement for God, we are like dogs drinking from muddy puddles or babies drinking their own bath water. Isn't that gross? That is not satisfying. That's not going to quench your thirst or meet your needs. It might taste wet, but it will not be. (sighs) That was really good. Very. It will not be like that. I tell you, your mouth gets dry when you preach for... I'll not say how long it's been. And that's refreshing. When we drink from anything else that the world offers, we might think it's satisfying, we might think it quenches our thirst, but it's toilet water. Spit it out. Acknowledge your need. And come to Christ. And you need to. You understand what thirst is. You get the analogy that Jesus is is providing for us here. Thirst in its most basic physiological sense is a conscious physical awareness of the need for liquid accompanied by that strong desire to drink. And you know what happens when you don't meet that need? I'll give you three days. And then that's it. Dead. And likewise, without the very water of life that Jesus promises, there is only death. Maybe if our souls here tonight are dry and we have no praise for God, Jesus invites us to come without hesitation. But we have to come, acknowledge my ways are wicked. I don't know God. Like these people, as they debate, Jesus just kept on saying, you don't know God. You think you know Moses and his law, you break that law. You think you know God and be able to recognize God when he comes about, you don't know God. Come to me. Before it's too late. Second thing, approach your gracious vendor. Jesus said, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. The one we the one that they and we are perhaps tempted to reject. He's a saviour. The one that these people are threatening to kill, Jesus at this point, offering salvation. Even to them. That's glorious. It's a true invitation, really, that that picks up what has been prophesied before, hundreds of years before in the book of Isaiah. Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and give and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear to me and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. 
Our call is to acknowledge our need. Our call is to approach Jesus as our gracious vendor who is ready to give us this gift of life. Thirdly, receive that gift. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. What does that mean? John tells us, verse 39, by this he means the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. People got this, okay? The connection between the pouring out of water and the coming of the Holy Spirit for the people of God was, were, were, were two things that would have been automatically connected when, when these people heard Jesus' words. They knew it. They, made, they would have made the connection. What Jesus is basically saying, all who come, he will give the soul's flourishing when we receive the free gift of the Holy Spirit, God himself to live in us when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You understand, I hope, that to have God, the Holy Spirit, living in you means, to be, means that you are recon, so reconciled to God that you are united to, in an unbreakable bond of love and of faith. And to receive a gift such as a, a gift of God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit to live in us is a gift greater than any gift that we could ever hope for. It's more overwhelming than any honor, than any position, any possession, any achievement, any other privilege that this world could serve up for us. And we know why this is. The Holy Spirit is the one the Bible teaches us is the one who breathes life into our dead hearts and gives us faith to believe in Jesus. He recreates us from being the cracked earth to being a people who flourish for God truly. He is the one who gives us faith to see Jesus for who he is. He is the one who, when we do that, continually shapes us and molds us more into the likeness of Jesus. He is the one who... Well, indwelling us, works in us love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He is the one who leads us to an understanding of the truth of Jesus and his word. The one who compels us and leads us to worship God. And holds up for us and leads us to see the beauty and the majesty of Jesus Christ that we might go deeper in our faith and deeper in our love for him. He is the one who even enables us to tell the world about Jesus and share this message. And he is the one who gives us gifts and abilities so that we can build up the church, so that our witness is greater, so that our light shines all the brighter. And this takes place the key to this is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. By this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. By later he means, John means, after Jesus has died, paying the penalty for sin. And after he has been raised to life again, showing that that penalty that was paid for sin has been accepted by the Father. And that man and God, who were once far away, can be reconciled through the Spirit of God.
dwelling in us. The call is to receive your free gift tonight. To admit your need to approach your gracious vendor, Jesus, and to to receive this free gift and never thirst again. How will you respond to this? Well, maybe like the crowds, you, you, you will just think, oh, he's, he's still something less than God in the flesh. My appeal to you, make a right judgment. See him for who he is tonight. Maybe some of you, maybe like the religious leaders, you react angrily to his claims. See them in the full context of his life and teaching. Make a right judgment on him and come to him. Maybe some of you are like Nicodemus. Your hearts are starting to turn towards Jesus, finding yourself agreeing with him more than you disagree with him or believing more things about him than you disbelieve about him. Put your whole faith and trust in him. We'd be glad to serve you in that and help you in answering some of the questions that you may have, whether it's in talking to us after the service or or doing one of our Christianity Explored courses or something like that. Make a right judgment and put your trust in him. Maybe others like these soldiers will say, no one ever spoke like this. And I believe every word he says. Then, in recognition of your need, come to Jesus, the giver of life, and receive a gift of living water so satisfying that you will never thirst again and so full that you will not have enough capacity to contain it for your own life, but that it will flow through you and out to others so that others will be even blessed through you. This is precious. This gift of water, the water of life, is so precious, understand, because it is the gift of God himself to live in you. Make a right judgment. Because just as the dry and dead land can be so revived by a flood of water, you who are parched, needy in your unbelief, can come and be revitalized and refreshed and made alive again through Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads together.